0: chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The good news is if you find Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 is really easy to find from there. So uh, Ephesians 2 is where I'd like to direct you this morning in your Bible. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, remind you again, there are, uh, there is no place on earth I would rather be and say, turn in your Bibles than here in this congregation, because... Uh, You take your Bibles and you open it and you listen and you think carefully about God's word. There is no better place that I can think of to open God's word than here among you. And it's a great privilege for me to be here uh, with you uh, this morning and every Sunday that I can. And this book, this book is open to us. What a book and the savior it speaks to us about. Uh, Let's read it, shall we? Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one, no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. if you had some free time yesterday and were near the Wintergreen Resort in Northern Virginia, you could have watched or even participated in what has been called the most rigorous athletic competition in the world. Wintergreen Resort yesterday hosted a Tough Mudder. Uh, now, some of you maybe have never heard of a Tough Mudder. A Tough Mudder is uh, relatively new. It's a relatively new event. The first one was held in 2010, just last year, here in Pennsylvania. And since that time, over 100,000 people have participated in a Tough Mudder. Uh, You're probably wondering what it is. A Tough Mudder is a race of between seven and 10 miles, but it's not like a marathon. They say that running in a straight line is boring. So what they do throughout this seven to 10 mile track is they uh, fill the uh, race track with 25 or 26 obstacles, designed by members of the British Special Forces. Uh, these obstacles, they have great names. Here's some of them. One of the obstacles is called the boa constrictor, where you have to crawl through a series of dark tunnels. Uh, the kiss of mud, where you belly crawl uh, through mud under low-hanging um, uh, a net. Uh, the funky monkey is a series of monkey bars hanging over a pool of cold water. There's an obstacle called the School of Tough Knocks where they take an old school bus and put a bunch of ropes over it and you have to climb up over the school bus. Um, There's an obstacle called electroshock therapy where you run through a series of hanging wires that are live with electricity. You run through them. (laughs) Uh, And my favorite neighbor... Oh, no... um, the next one I'll tell you about is called the Killa Gorilla. Uh, the Killa Gorilla is a, a steep hill in the track, and you have to run up and down it ten times in order to proceed. The uh, last one I'll tell you about is called the Fire Walker. And in the Fire Walker, right before you get to the finish line, you have to run through a field that is covered with burning, hay, uh, burning bales of hay. And you run through the smoke and the flames to get to the finish line. Um, Tough mutters are not timed Uh, Their finishing is the accomplishment of a Tough mutter, And actually only 80% of participants finish And and, uh, camaraderie is an important part of the event In fact, you're encouraged to to register with teammates Because in order to do some of the obstacles You need uh, fellow participants to help you as you make it through um, if you're thinking about registering for a Tough Mutter, the next one that's coming up, I, I warn you, the Tough Mudder uh, website, uh, which incidentally contains some salty language, be forewarned, uh, contains repeated and numerous warnings. Even if you think you are in great shape, you are not ready for this competition. I looked at the website and the first thing I thought was, this sounds like a lot of fun, and then I kept reading and thought, never in my life. If I was ever at one point in time in good enough shape to do this, it's not today. My sisters could probably both do it, but I can't, and I'm okay admitting that this morning. Uh, you, uh, you need to prepare for the tough. It doesn't matter how good of a shape you think you're in, you need to get ready. Uh, you find, you'll find, if you go and register and enter this event, you will find ambulances scattered throughout the, the racetrack and they will carry people away in the ambulance. And if you're not ready, you might be one of them. In fact, on the website, you can find training programs and instructional videos and testimonials, all that are geared up for telling you this is going to be difficult. This is going to be the hardest thing that you will ever done. Be ready. It's going to be the most physically vigorous test of your life. I mentioned that to you today because I think there are parallels between the warnings on the website and what we find here in the book of Ephesians. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, when I, when I described the Tough mutter, you thought to yourself, where do I sign up? Some of you were thinking that. You were thinking, where do I sign up? And, and the next thing that you, you think to yourself is, I, I don't see any connection between... and what you described. Paul, The Apostle Paul never talked about the killer gorilla anywhere in his letters. What's the parallel here that, that you're drawing? The Bible says that to become a follower of Christ is a high calling. It's to pursue a high calling. And in this high calling that we're pursuing, we talk a lot about mercy and we talk about dependence and meekness. It's an impossible calling. But the Bible also tells us that following Christ is the most difficult endeavor you will ever undertake. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I worked harder, I worked and worked and worked harder than any other apostle in doing what I did. In 1 Corinthians 16, the next chapter, he he has this command that he issues to the readers. He says, um, you need to act like men what the, the verb literally means in, in 1 Corinthians 16. Act like men. He tells them it's time to man up. And that command is for 18-year-old athletes and 82-year-old Sunday school teachers. I had an 82 Sunday, 82-year-old Sunday school teacher when I was growing up. Her name was Irma Dengler, and Irma Dengler was an awesome lady. She started teaching the primary Sunday school class at the Baptist Church of Perry during the Spanish-American War and was still there when I showed up in her class 80 years later. She's 114. And, and God's me- every Sunday she was there welcoming uh, us to class. And God's message to Irma Dangler is, Irma Dangler, if you want to follow Christ, Irma, you need to man up. How do you man up when you're wearing fake pearls in a pillbox hat? Uh, maybe that sounds strange to you that you would say, we have dear ladies like Irma Dangler in our own church. And God's message to you, dear ladies, is man up. Maybe that sounds a little bit uh, disrespectful. Um, you might see things, though, from a different perspective this morning if you take a second look at the passage of the Bible that I just read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me let me orient you again to the text. The The book of Ephesians is a book that begins by focusing our attention on God's blessing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And God fills us with blessings like a glass of water and the blessings come and they overflow and the blessings of God are designed in His family to overflow and splash and refresh and rejuvenate and challenge those that are around us. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. We are filled to overflowing as followers of Christ. And chapter one he enumerates these blessings, and he talks about blessings from God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And then for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the prayer that Paul prayed for them in Ephesians 1:15 to 23. And he prayed that they would know hope and, and um, uh, grace and mercy from God, but most in particular, he prayed that they would know God's power, God's incomparably great power for those who believe. But between uh, and, and God's power that he mentions here in Ephesians chapter 1 is supposed to empower us to do things and he mentions in Ephesians 2:10 the power is to lead to verse 10 of chapter 2 the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. But between the power at the end of chapter 1 and the good works in verse 10 of chapter 2, there is this mention of what God has done. These incredible obstacles that God enables us to overcome. That's actually what I want to focus on this morning. Uh, But before we proceed to the challenges of verse 10 and chapters 4, 5, and 6... I want to look with you this morning at the obstacles that are in our way that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. The things that must be overcome. And understand here that what Paul is describing is not a game. This is not a challenge that you can quit. The stakes are much, much higher than any race that you will ever compete in. But I want you to see this morning two things in the text from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. First, we're going to look at our natural or your natural condition before God. What is your natural condition before God? And the second thing that we're going to look at is your natural opponents. What is there that is naturally opposing you in this following Christ that the Bible calls us to? First, uh, your natural condition. It's very easy. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. That is your natural condition. You were dead. Now, Paul obviously is not describing a physical death. We are here this morning and we are physically alive. Paul's describing spiritual death. We are naturally spiritually dead. And because of that, there is an absolute and complete separation from the source of spiritual life, namely God himself. When the Greeks and Jews would use this imagery of death, they uh, um, didn't speak of death as the end. That was not in the thinking of of Greeks and Jews when they would speak of death. Not death as the end, but death as a transition from the physical world to another world and and the, point, uh, the, the main emphasis of this was they go to an, a world out of communication. You cannot speak to the dead and the dead cannot speak to you. Uh, the living go there and they never return. It's impossible to communicate with them. The dead are out of reach and they have no ability to produce life in themselves. And we are spiritually dead. According to the Bible, our physical lives are real, but in one sense, they're just the trailing afterglow of our spiritual life that has ceased. Um, Maybe you can imagine that Paul here is comparing us in Ephesians to, to headless chickens. Heard that expression that someone was running around like a chicken with its head cut off. I have never slaughtered a chicken, but I understand that if you remove the chicken's head there is still enough nerve activity to propel that bird forward and around. And if you're not careful, you'll end up eating dinner on the run. <laughs> um, the chicken is not really... The chi- who said that? I can't believe it. The chicken is not really alive um, and, and soon it will cease all functioning, but it has the, the trailing edge of life in its body as it, as it runs around the barnyard. It's similar to Paul's condition of, of the natural condition of human beings. There's still life, that's still the trailing edge of spiritual life, but in the one way that matters the most for all eternity, we're dead in our disconnection from God. Uh, maybe you could think about Paul, what Paul's writing here uh, in, in terms of zombies. Zombies are the new monster craze. We've gone through vampires and werewolves and now zombies. You can watch zombie television shows and read zombie books and play zombie video games, none of them probably very edifying. Uh, Zombies are the walking dead, right? They move and they eat, preferably the brains of other people who are not zombies. Uh, You can't reason with zombies. You can't talk with zombies. They are mindless, eating, moving creatures. And this is similar to the Bible's description of the nature of human beings. Now, it's not a very attractive image, is it? It's certainly not how we want to picture ourselves, is it? As zombies or headless chickens? It's not the first thought that comes to my mind when you think of human beings. After all, we have the ability to do impressive things, don't we? We can uh, build beautiful buildings and we can write uh, wonderful music and we can make ourselves look and smell pretty good. We build hospitals, we defeat tyrants, we alleviate suffering, we can manipulate our environment. We don't look like headless chickens or mindless zombies. Although, you do a lot of grooming to fight that, don't you? If you did it, you might start to look and smell like a zombie. Hmm. I understand that, that, that you know, this, this image here does, is not really attractive, but, but people who object to it, I think it, it comes from underestimating how dire the Bible's description of our situation really is. Paul isn't isn't speaking about mere human characteristics. He's not comparing, I I don't know, citizens of the United States and citizens of Venezuela. He's not comparing children with senior citizens. He's, He's not comparing men and women. Paul here is speaking about our condition before God in comparing how do we stand before God, our Creator. That's why he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. These are two words here that Paul is using as synonyms, transgressions and sins. They describe us as the people who have made deliberate, conscious, willful steps in opposition to God Himself. This is our condition before God. This is not our condition as we compare ourselves to people who have less money or of a different nationality or a different race, uh, of a different gender. Paul is describing our condition before God and we are rebels before Him. He is our Creator. He designed the world to function in a specific way and we have rejected His ways in favor of our own. He's the one whose boundaries we have transgressed. It's against Him that we have fallen short. We have violated His will. We have stepped outside of His sovereign authority. We're dead in transgressions and sins. We have no spiritual life. In many ways, what Paul is describing here is the foolishness of our condition. We have made foolish choices. They're foolish by every imaginable measurement. Our rejection of God is foolish because God's plans and designs are good. You can see that all the way through the book of Ephesians. God lavishes wisdom and understanding on us. He is rich in grace His mercy is is incomparable and and we have turned our back on Him. This is as if to say that God Himself offers a ten-course meal we would rather eat garbage. God offers us a palatial mansion to live in and we prefer our cardboard hovels. God offers a family where there is love and acceptance and we would rather walk through life in a knife fight than accept the family He offers. It's foolish, it's foolish to reject God's good plans. It's foolish to reject God's plans not just because they're good, but because God's power is absolute and we are inescapably accountable to Him. We talked about this a little bit last week. At the end of chapter 1, God has all authority to set His Son above every authority, every claimant to power in all creation. And someday, every one of us is going to stand before Him. And you will not be able to, in that moment, cover yourself with a fig leaf. You will not be able to produce an argument that will mitigate your deserved sentence. There's no app that you can have on your smartphone for that moment in time. There's no human insurance policy that you can create that's going to cover your costs. There's no amount of good deeds that you can satisfy him with, and God in that moment will be unimpressed with your childhood confession of of his son at VBS that never changed your life. God is not honored by people who who look at his son and treat his son only as a get out of free hell card. We're going to come back to our accountability to God in a moment. But remember, this is your condition. You're dead. We are dead. And being dead indicates that we can do nothing about this on our own. Brian Chappell, who is the president of Covenant Seminary at this moment in time, would have us think about Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus died. While he was sick, his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus uh took Jesus a few days, he, he, he took a few days to get there. By the time he arrived there, Lazarus was dead. Mary and Martha did not go into the tomb where Lazarus was and tell him to wake up because Jesus was coming. They did not go to Lazarus, dead Lazarus, and complain about him that he wasn't vacuuming the carpet or scrubbing the kitchen floor. They didn't complain that Lazarus wasn't brushing his teeth uh, they, they didn't have Lazarus sit up so that he would be appropriate to welcome Jesus. Lazarus was dead. There was nothing that Lazarus could do until Jesus came and called him out of death back into life. Actually, that's why Paul introduces the main verb of this sentence, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, in verse 5 that says, God made us alive. Oh, that's good news. Your natural condition is that you're spiritually dead. And this is a reminder to us that when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ in your Sunday school class or in Awana or in your car as you're talking to them uh, in your neighborhood, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, um, it's because God has made them alive It's the miraculous work. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ. Um, God has done miracle working power in your life. Oh, praise Him for His kindness. He's done this great work of making you who were dead alive. It's our natural condition. We are spiritually dead. In the verses that follow here, Paul uh, further describes what it means to be spiritually dead, uh, and he tells us about the natural opponents that, uh, that face us. He's going to once we get past chapter two and into chapters three and four, he's going to tell us what this new life in Christ is supposed to look like now that God has made us alive. But before that, he wants Paul wants you to know there are opponents that are standing against you because of your naturally dead spiritual condition. In verses two and three, Paul identifies two, uh, four, excuse me, four of these opponents. They're outside of us. They're a part of us. Your natural obstacles, opponents. Here's the first one. Number one, the ways of this world. The ways of this world. The verse one says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The word live here is a, is a translation of the word for walk. You used to walk. And when the Bible uses the term walk, it's talking about your condition, your lifestyle, how you live. Um, in, in chapter 4, when we come to it in Ephesians 4, there is going to be a, a repeated use of this word. Walk in love. Walk in holiness. Walk in unity. Here he says, you used to walk this way, you used to live this way, when you followed the ways of this world. And the Bible uses the term world in a variety of ways. Here it is talking about the world as it exists in opposition to God. If you take a bunch of transgressors and sinners and you mix them together in, in a wonderful soup, you will get a world soup and the, the flavor of that soup will be bitter. When we human beings get together, we don't, because we're naturally transgressors and sinners, we don't honor God or showcase His excellence. We create things that diminish God and demean God and stand in opposition to God. That's what happens when transgressors and sinners get together. And that's what this world. Uh, that's what this word "world" means here. There is <coughs> there is nothing in this world that you, we create as human beings that pushes us naturally to think and weigh carefully spiritual realities. See, the only, thing you, the only way you ever think about spiritual realities is pushing back against this world. Think, think very practically about this. There is no encouragement on the newspaper or on television to view the world from a spiritual perspective. Your favorite sports league is not interested in cultivating godliness in you. It doesn't do anything for you in that regard. Uh, the things at your house, your refrigerator, your vacuum cleaner doesn't care whether you're an atheist, agnostic, or a Buddhist. Um, your car, in no way, unless you put a bumper sticker on it, does anything to acknowledge God's supremacy. Uh, there's, there's no encouragement from the environment that you have made, that the human beings have made, that is around us, that encourages us, to us to think deeply about spiritual realities. You know that song, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? There's a line that says, is this cruel world a friend to grace, to help me unto God? And the answer is, no, it's not. There's nothing out there that encourages us to think spiritually, uh, spiritual thoughts. Uh, the word ways, when it says the ways of this world, that word ways emphasizes this world's temporariness. It's an unusual use of the word Paul has here, um, It means, uh, in other places, it's translated age, or era, or eon. Uh, This world system that opposes God is temporary, it's limited. And and our calling as followers of Christ is to push back. This is an obstacle to, to living up to the call that God has given us in Christ, pushing back. We push back so in the grocery store, you're not just thinking about your coupons and how much you're spending, but you're thinking about the eternal destiny of this clerk that's checking out your groceries. And when you buy a television, you think not just about the sound and the, the picture quality, but you think about how, much this, how this machine, what kind of effect it's going to have on your prayer life. We push back. You push back when you buy a pair of shoes and you wonder when you buy it, not just if they're comfortable, but you wonder if anybody is reaching the Bangladeshi factory workers who put that shoe together for you. Anybody care about these Bangladeshis who made the shoes that I'm wearing right now? Think about that. You push back. See, we are people who discipline ourselves to push back against the ways of this world, not to infuse the world with spiritual significance, but to recognize the spiritual significance that is already there. Our second natural opponent, the first one is the ways of this world. Our second natural opponent is also in verse 2. Paul here mentions the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 2, it says, "...in which you used to walk, live when you follow the ways of this world." and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who he describes also as the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The kingdom of the air is an unusual phrase. It's unique to the New Testament here. Um, Paul, I think, is plugged in a little bit to the worldview of the the Greeks and ancient Judaism that in particular viewed the air as the domain for demonic forces. Hmm. If you were alive... Uh, during the era when uh, radio and television were just coming into existence, you might have heard a great sermon from someone who said, they're sending signals to the air, which is the domain of Satan, so you should not get a radio, because it's satanic. That's not what Paul's talking about here. And don't get on a plane, either. <sighs> Through the air. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about. It's this, this, just this, uh, this idea that, in particular, the air is a place... Uh, where Satan rules. Paul here is talking about the ruler of the air. He's speaking of Satan himself, he, he, who he calls the spirit at work and those who are disobedient. Your translation might say the sons of disobedience. That is, those who are marked by disobedience, by character, by nature. The, the natural world, uh, the, the natural reaction in Western culture to the idea of Satan and talking about his authority in this world is, is skepticism. If you ask most educated people whether or not they believe in Satan, they might laugh at you. Satan. <laughs> no, don't believe in Satan. Uh, I don't think they have a very good reason to not believe in Satan, a rational reason. Uh, ask them this question. Do you believe in a supernatural, personal, all-powerful being filled with goodness called God? And most people that you talk to will say yes. Their view of God may not be very Christian, it may not be very biblical, but most of them will say yes, I believe in God. If they believe in the uh, all-powerful, supernatural, personal, good being named God, they have no real rational reason for disbelieving in the supernatural evil personal being known as Satan. Maybe you are ashamed to speak too much about Satan or think too much about him because he's so often the butt of jokes. It's funny to talk about Satan and demons. It's never been in his best interest to be taken seriously. Satan is at work in the world today through temptation, through blindness, obscuring the glory of Christ. Uh, he's at work in your life accusing you before God. He's at work in, your, in, your, in our congregation trying to sow discord in the church. Last week at our small group leaders training meeting, we were reading from Colossians 1. We were talking about the great thought that the Spirit of God might be at work in your small group meeting. Think about that. Tonight when you gather with those men and women from church, God's Spirit at work in your meeting. It's astounding. But just think too, that the, the the ruler of the power of the air is at work too. Uh, Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians we're not unaware of his schemes. We're naturally dead, Paul says, and we live in an environment that's dominated by worldly ways and powerful rulers. Here is the third opponent, the third opponent opponent, the desires of the sinful nature. The desires of the sinful nature. That's in verse three. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Your translation might not say sinful nature, it might say flesh. And if you're paying attention this morning, you might recognize that we have already talked to them about three things the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oh that triumvirate of evil that the Bible warns us against repeatedly. By sinful nature or by flesh, Paul here is describing our inner disposition to sin, and here he he personalizes it. It's part of us, but Paul speaks of it as if it is something separate from us. It's, It's our flesh, but it desires and it craves, and we sometimes follow this craving thing. That this, part, this remains part of us, whether or not we're Christians. And, and it's separate from us, not in the sense that I'm not responsible for it, not in the sense that I can say, well, I didn't do it, but my flesh did, so God, you've got to let me out because it's my flesh. That, that's not the way in which Paul is speaking of it as a separate entity. He speaks of it as a separate entity not to diminish our responsibility, but to speak about how alien it is to our new life in Christ. You have a part of you inside of you that is uh, alienated from God and that is constantly longing, constantly desiring, constantly craving things that, are, uh, that oppose God's will. Actually, it's not just a craving part, it's a thinking part too. Paul says um, that, that we're following its desires and thoughts. This disposition to sin affects not just what I want, but it affects how I think, too. I can rationalize the things that I want. This week, I was uh, flipping through the radio stations and I found an interview with a guy who wrote a testimonial about a rather unsavory life that he led. Um, one that was dominated by the sinful nature. So it was not a Christian testimony, but it was a celebration of the life that he was leading. Um, I was listening to this and at the same time I had two different reactions. Uh, On the one hand, I recognized that reading this book that I was hearing about would not be a help to my spiritual life. And the second thing that I thought was, but maybe it will help me understand people. This insidious rationalization. I can rationalize any of my sinful cravings. Every follower of Christ living in this hostile world has to recognize that there is this enemy within. There is this internal force that is constantly arguing and constantly wanting for you to turn away from God, pursue your own path. And following Christ is a matter of constantly saying, no, no, no. I will not watch that, I will not eat that, I will not hope for that, I will not focus on that, I will not meditate on that, I will not buy that. In some ways, following Christ is like living with a diabetic who's got a sweet tooth. (laughs) Some of you live with diabetics who have sweet tooth. Someone for whom eating sugar is dastardly dangerous, these sugary snacks, but that's all they want. Uh, it's not good for you to eat those sugary snacks. You'll go blind, you'll lose limbs, but you want it, you want it, you want it. Most of you here have had blood work that requires fasting. Well, we're talking about diabetes, right? You've had blood work that requires fasting, so uh, your doctor says to you, you're going to come in on Wednesday for blood work at 7 a.m. Don't eat anything on Tuesday night after 7 p.m. You may never in your life make it a habit of eating after 7 p.m., but as soon as that restriction is lowered, you know, at 7.05, you are starving like you have never been starving in your life. You've got to have something. You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every, every three minutes on, the commer- on television, there's a commercial for Stouffer's something, you know, some lasagna that you got to have, right? The doctor said, no. You have within you this craving that is constantly there and constantly active. And part of your relationship with Christ involves saying, no, no, no. You say no because you have said yes to Christ and you recognize that whatever He offers is far better than whatever this longing is inside of you, that you can rationalize really easily one final opponent here that's mentioned in these verses in verse 3 it says like the rest of God we were by nature objects of wrath our final opponent is the wrath of God your translation might say it what is mentioned here in verse 3 it could be translated we were by nature children of wrath we are wrath's children by nature it is deeply embedded in who we are Chuck Swindoll, when he was stationed in California as part of the Marine Corps, uh, I believe he was in San Diego, I'm not, not sure, but he, he went into a church and he saw in the foyer of this church a, a beautiful mural painted high and big on the wall and it had pictures of famous world leaders, some of them religious leaders, but at the time they were just famous, well-known people, like Mother Teresa and Gandhi and the Dalai Lama, and Dwight Eisenhower, and just famous people, and, and stenciled in beautiful letters Uh, under their pictures, it said, we are all sons of God. Dot, dot, dot. It had a reference to Galatians 3. It left off the most important part of that verse. We are all sons of God through Jesus Christ. See, the natural condition of human beings as we are born is not to be closely related to God. We are, in fact, more closely related to God's wrath than we are to God Himself. God's wrath is our daddy, naturally, not God. And someday, the Bible tells us, we are uh, those who are, remain as objects of wrath are going to come into their inheritance. And they will receive from their father wrath nothing but condemnation. God in His grand work to restore the world that He made and to execute perfect justice in His creation is going to pour out His wrath on those who continue to reject the goodness and wisdom of His ways. If we remain in our natural condition and if these verses, if the Bible ended at verse 3, we would have nothing but despair. Next week we're going to continue, Lord willing, to find out what God has done for us We're going to consider it in great detail what it means to say that God has made us alive. We're going to look at the fact that He saved us by His grace through His Son. And He applies that grace to us by faith alone. And when we believe, God treats us as if Christ's death were ours and Christ's resurrection were ours. We're with Him. And there's benefits of being with Him. Next month is Thanksgiving, and my family, my extended family, will be here. We always get together at Thanksgiving. And my nieces and nephews will be populating some of your Sunday school classes and children's classes. My, my parents always bring my nephew Danny and my niece Haley to church here. This is the only place they ever go to church, and, and whenever they're visiting, my parents are very careful to make sure they're here in Sunday school here in church. Well, <laughs> My my nephew, Danny, doesn't have a lot of familiarity with the church, but he knows that I'm his uncle and that in some way I'm associated with this building. Well, one day in children's church, he was uh, talking to his children's church teacher, who happened to be Nate Long, actually, and he he said to Nate, he said, you know what, Uh, my uncle owns this church. (laughs) I'm not sure if he was trying to get extra snacks or what he was aiming for. But he told My uncle owns this church. Uh, Nate very wisely and gently said to him, uh, By the way, when my niece and nephew come to this church, they are loved by this congregation. I, I'm, I'm thrilled when I can bring them here. This, this is what they think of, Danny and Haley, when they think of church. And, and they receive love and affection and warmth from their teachers. Well, Danny apparently was angling maybe for something. I don't know. I, my uncle owns this church. Nate very gently and graciously said, Well, um, I actually believe that God owns the church. Danny looked at him and said, No, I'm pretty sure that my uncle owns the church. <laughs> See, if you're in the building, even, even a little boy can understand this, if you're in the building and your uncle owns the building, there are probably some benefits. And the rest of this passage and the rest of the book of Ephesians unpacks for us further that if you are in Christ and you are with Christ and you are Christ, there are benefits and blessings before God. My Savior owns this world. My Savior owns this, uh, has, has purchased for me grace from God and it's mine. And the blessings come and they overflow and, and that, it's that connection with Christ that enables us to face this opponent and run with vigor the race that's set before us. It's time to man up. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we naturally have no rights to come before you. We uh, would do better to pray to our natural father, Wrath, because... Uh, we naturally have only this connection to you, that we are under your judgment. But we're grateful to you for these great words in the book of Ephesians that God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ. Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy, that we would praise you because you have done this work in us. And I pray, Father, that you would fill us with gumption as we go about running the race that's set before us. We're still very desperately needy people. We need courage and resolve to say no, to push back, uh, to to encourage one another in this. God, I I pray that you would help us. Um, This world is no friend to grace. It isn't helping us unto God. So we we come before you, recognizing that we have an anchor uh, in the heavenly places. Uh, We have an advocate in heavenly places. So we're asking you to extend help from your throne to us. You who are the great God, full of power. We pray all these things and express our joy and our love for Jesus Christ to you again today. We pray these things in, in our Savior's name. Amen.